Well, every believer in Jesus Christ is going to experience problems and trials and, and all types of uh, tragedies in their life. The question really is not if, um, but rather when. And when difficulties arise and when we're in the midst of it, um, uh, the, it, it, it's always hard and it's always going to challenge our faith in, in what it is that we believe. Uh, when it's even more difficult is when we begin to suffer or we go through those difficulties when we're trying to do good, when we're trying to walk with God and obey God. Uh, when we do that and, and we're trying to submit ourselves to Him, but yet we feel as though uh, a bunch of difficulties are coming our way, it's hard for us to reconcile that in our minds. It's, it's hard for us to make sense of it, uh, especially since oftentimes it seems almost contradictory to the Scriptures. If you go to the Old Testament, uh, you'll find God promising his people, Israel, over and over again. He'll say, if you, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. And he gives this promise over and over again to his co- the covenant nation of Israel. And, and, then, and then it's not only found, though, in the Old Testament, it bleeds over to the New Testament as well. For example, we come to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where the author of Hebrews writes, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He says, look, uh, the only way to to please God is to have faith in God. And and that begins by believing that he exists. And then there's another step, though, and that is believing that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's a huge part of what we are to believe in God and what pleases God. That if we do right, he will please us. That's why when we are seeking to do what is right... But things seem to be falling apart and only facing trouble after trouble after difficulty after hardship. It's hard for us to be able to understand the two. We begin to struggle with it. And not only do we struggle with that, but where the struggle becomes even greater in our lives, at least this is true for me, maybe it's true for you, is at the same time that the righteous are suffering, it appears as those those who are wicked are prospering. Then it becomes really difficult for me to be able to figure out. And, and, and this, is, this is true for all God's believers, and it was certainly true for a man by the name of Asaph. Asaph is actually the author, author of Psalm chapter 73. We don't know a great deal about him, except for he was one of the lead, David's lead choir conductors, lead worship leaders. He was the first uh, cell phone superstar, and um, uh, Nick was not the first. And so, uh, and so he would lead in this way, um, and he's also written a couple of the Psalms, 11, I think, in particular, and here is one of them. And when we look at it, what we're going to find is he begins to really struggle with the same idea as well, this prosperity of the wicked, and he can't make sense of it. And he finds himself at one particular point in absolute despair, but as he works through this particular chapter, he comes to a place of delight. And so what I want to do this morning is we're just going to walk through the text like we normally do. And what I hope to do is, is hopefully through the Word of God came to the same conclusions that, that Asaph did concerning this idea of God's people suffering and the wicked prospering. And maybe God could bring that together to us and clear some of that up as a point of encouragement. So here's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to look at Asaph's conviction, Asaph's contemplation, Asaph's conclusion, 
And then finally, uh, Asaph's correction. So let's look at Asaph's conviction. First of all, verse 1, we read, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So this is what Asaph believes. He believes that God is good. He believes this biblically, theologically, experientially. He knows this personally. Uh, He's the the one that would say, the first one to say that old saying, Hey, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. This is his biblical conviction. So by his conviction, his heart's conviction that God is by nature good, he knows he must then be good to his own people, to his covenant people of Israel. And even more so, he must be good to those, as he says, who are pure in heart. Now, pure of heart doesn't mean that a person is perfect. doesn't mean that they're sinless. It just means that they're sincere. That is that they are sincerely seeking after God. That's who he refers to as pure in heart. God is good to those, not who are perfect, but are sincerely seeking God, seeking to obey him, submit to him, love him, live for him. God is good to them. He believes this with every part of who he is. It is his biblical conviction. In verse 2, however, we come to this, this sentence. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What is he talking about? I believe he's talking about his faith here. Uh, The word faith literally means to stand strong, to stand firm. So when he comes on the scene and he says, hey, look, I almost almost stumbled and, and I nearly slipped, he's talking about the fact that what he was experiencing, that was he was suffering as pursuing God and the wicked who were rebelling against God were actually doing well and they were prospering. It was that particular situation that almost caused him to fail in his faith and to fall away from God. This is serious stuff. And so he says, again, he gives the answer, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is what he's struggling with. This is what many times we struggle with. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the fact that he said that he almost stumbled and that he nearly slipped and that he didn't stumble and he didn't slip. That means that he never fell away from the faith. A big part of the reason for that was because of the biblical conviction that he held. I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough, church, how important it is for you and I to have within our hearts strong biblical conviction. For you and I to read the word of God, to believe the word of God, to understand what it is that God says, to, to cling to it. Why? Because when we find ourselves in situations that we can't make sense of, in, in situations in our life that we, we can't make heads or tails of, we just don't understand, the only thing that keeps us from falling all the way is, is what it is that we understand to be true. Those biblical convictions. I, 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 love what, I, I love what one author says, Chuck Smith says. He, he says this, he says, don't give up what you understand for what you don't understand. Don't give up what you understand for what you don't understand. He knows that God is true. His emphasis is now, he doesn't understand how that works in the midst of his suffering and the prosperity of the wicked. Now he's tempted to give up his belief that God is good. And he says, why would you do that? And, and yet people do this every day. I've known people who have been grown up in the church. They're a part of the church. They'll, they'll lead Bible studies. They'll talk about the goodness of God and the love for God. But then they lose a child or they come down with cancer or they lose a spouse. And they completely abandon the faith. Why? Because they are emphasizing what they don't understand rather than clinging to what they do understand. And what we do understand is God is good to those who sincerely seek after him. That is what we know. We just don't know all the rest. And so he comes and he says that this is Asaph's conviction, but then we begin to talk about Asaph's contemplation. 
And what that means is he looks around and he begins to see things that really begins to stir his heart and really cause problems and struggles within his heart. You and I have, have been there. All of us have. And, and so he begins to struggle. And, and what he does is now he's going to give us more specifically what it is that he's looking at, what it is that he's seeing that's causing him so much problem. And in verse 4, he begins to see the prosperity of the w- wicked, specifically their health. If you, if you notice in verse 4, he says, For they have no pangs until death. This just simply means that they lived in perfect health. They didn't seem to have heart problems. They didn't have gingivitis or arthritis or any other itis. They didn't seem to have any kind of really bad, painful afflictions, drawn-out afflictions in their life. They just always seemed to be healthy all the time until they went to bed one night and they died. It's like the best of both worlds. Perfect health, painless death. And he goes, and this is what I see in the life of the wicked. And he says, and they are fat and they are sleek. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, this isn't some backhanded jab at them. Uh, I wouldn't go and say that to your wife. Honey, you look awfully fat and sleek tonight. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. It's probably not going to go over well. But what he means is this, is for fat means that there is an abundance that you have everything that you need, specifically as far as food goes. So you and I, when we think of somebody unhealthy, the doctor's usually like, bro, you got to eat better. You ain't, you're not eating good stuff, right? Uh, you got you to put the donut down, walk away from the donut. But in this particular time, it wasn't about eating too much. It was not, a, a, a bad health came from not having enough. And he says, but the rich have plenty. They have all they need to be able to live this healthy life physically. And he says, not only are they prosperous in their health, but they also are living trouble-free lives. Look at verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph says, all I do is feel like I deal with one problem after another after another. In fact, my whole life is just dealing with problems. He goes, I look at the wicked. They, They seem to be completely devoid of problems and troubles like I am. I ask what's going on. They say, it can't be any better. They ask me how it's going. Go, it can't be any worse. This is what Asaph is seeing. And then in the midst of this, now, now notice this, in the midst of uh, uh, this, um, this enjoying this pain-free, trouble-free life, they walk around, that's those who are sinning against God, with an air of arrogance about them. Uh, look what verse 6 says. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Now, you and I know that uh, we're proud, but we don't want to show people we're proud, right? Because we know that's wrong. So what are we ultimately going to do? This is bad, by the way, but I'm just telling you what we do in our sinful hearts. We usually take our pride and we like to cover it with just a thin uh, veil of, of humility to kind of throw people off our scent of all of our pride. Well, you know what? There's a time when you could become so sinful, you don't even understand you're supposed to be doing that, and you just bear it for all to see. He says, that's what these guys are doing. They are so arrogant, they're not even trying to hide it. They wear their arrogance like a million-dollar necklace, If you wear a million-dollar necklace of of, of rubies and diamonds, you're not trying to go incognito. You're trying to draw attention to yourself. He says they're so arrogant, and in their arrogance, they wear it in a way they want people to know that they're arrogant. And they're so arrogant and full of themselves, they don't care if they go around and and they, they cause violence to other people. Again, this is all what he sees in those who are prospering in their wickedness. And then in verse 7, he says, their eyes swell out through fatness. Now, that's just disgusting, right? That just sounds gross. But, but, but what, 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 what is he saying? In essence, he says, again, uh, there's two different ideas there. Some authors suggest that whatever it is that they see, they get. 
So there's not something they see and they, they go to the store and you're like, hey, I like that. I'm going to have to save up for that. Hey, I like that. I'll never be able to afford that. They go, hey, I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. Whatever their eyes lay on, they end up getting. But then he says, but others say it's not really about that. Instead, what it is that they have so much excess, they have so much that it's literally coming out of their eyes. That's basically what he's conveying here. So the point is they're wealthy. And he says, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So in midst of all this pain-free, trouble-free, poverty-free life, they are doing what? They are oppressing God's people and they are blaspheming God in the midst of all of this. And yet, everything seems to keep turning up roses Everything seems to be flowing so well. Their bank accounts are bigger and bigger. Their children seem to be better and better. Everything seems to be going well. And he can't understand any of it. Then he gets to verse 10. He says, therefore, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. I think this is a reference to their popularity. He says, isn't it strange that these people are mean to everybody and everybody loves them? He goes, they're mean to everybody, they're rude, they're not nice, they're, they're the people who sue everybody for, for what they do, and yet everybody else is standing around and wants to be exactly like them because of all that they ultimately have. What the author may be indicating here is it's more than that, what he might be indicating that even God's people are envying to be exactly like them, and I think that's what's happening. So sad, isn't it, that we see uh, Christians who uh, will see secular artists and, and secular athletes and, hey, that's all great to want to be good at what you do, but these people do not hold for the faith, do not stand up for what is right, but rather just the opposite in wickedness against God, not for God. And even God's own people sit there and go, I wish I could be like them. And I think that that's where he's going with this. And then in verses 11 through 12, we see just how arrogant they ultimately are. He says, how can God know? He goes, is there, um, he goes, how how can God know? Is is there knowledge in the most high? Again, let me give you two explanations. Some would suggest that what he's saying there is, hey, God doesn't even know what we're doing and we're getting away with it. So so basically people are saying, people are going, hey, you better watch out. God's going to get you someday. And he goes, God doesn't know what we're doing. If God knew what we were doing, if he wasn't oblivious to what we were doing, he would do something about it and he would stop us. Clearly he doesn't know. But I don't think that's precisely what's going on. I think instead he's saying this. He's saying to the Christian people, and he's mocking them, in essence he's saying, you keep trying to submit to God's way, to God's law, to live the way that he says to live. How's that working out for you? God apparently doesn't know how to live because all it's doing is causing you to be in more difficulty. He goes, we're living our own way, doing our own thing. And guess what? We're prospering while doing it. God doesn't know how to live. We know ultimately how to live. And then he finishes that section out by saying, behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, the question is, some of us could sit back and go, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. But is this fully true? Is is what he's saying completely true? I mean, is, is every wicked person in this world truly prospering financially, truly prospering uh, in health? Uh, have you been to a hospital? Go to a hospital. You're going to find believers and unbelievers who are suffering physically. Yes? Go to a prison. Do, do those who are wicked and done wicked things, are they sitting back and going, you know, I'm living a trouble-free life. This is fantastic in prison. No. And then on the other side, is every believer in Jesus Christ struggling? Is every believer in Jesus Christ poor? Is every believer in Jesus Christ, uh, are, are they completely broke? No, some are, some aren't. 
then how are we to understand this? Why is he only viewing one particular thing and only seeing the very best that's happening to the wicked? And here's essentially why. It is because that's what Satan does, and it's the way that he works. But he does with you and I is he's always trying to build a case against God and God's goodness towards us. So he will do everything he can to get you and I only to look at one little sliver of truth and to find those that have it better than you and me. And he's going to use it as, as a challenge against God, a case for God and against his goodness. Isn't this exactly what happened with Eve in the garden? I mean, even from the very beginning, this isn't some new trick. With Eve in the garden, she's there and he says, did, did, did God say that you could eat of any of the trees of the garden? And how does she respond? Well, he says, all but one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's a little bit of truth in there. And then, and then he turns to him and he says, you want to know the real reason why God doesn't want you to eat of the tree? It's not because you'll die. It's because he doesn't want you to be like him. He, he, he's keeping you back. You could be so much more if you just wouldn't do what God says. He doesn't have your best interests involved. And so mark this, understand this. Whenever your mind and my mind begins to work in a way that we begin to build a case against God's goodness towards us, know that it's the enemy that's working within our minds. And so he, he comes now to his conclusion. Look at his conclusion. Verse 13 and 15. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Uh, there's a scripture passage that says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, but he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He says, he who's not doing wicked things, uh, he who is keeping their heart pure before God. And he says, I've tried to do all these things before God. And he says, but it's been in vain. To break it down for you, he says this, living for God doesn't pay. It's not worth it. This is the conclusion that he comes to. This is what he's seeing around him. He says, you work and you sacrifice and you keep yourself from evil things all for what? For more trouble, for more difficulty. He's saying, in fact, he would have been better off just to live like the wicked than to try to submit and to be able to live for God. It just doesn't ultimately pay. He's in a dark spot right now. Would you agree? He's in a dark spot. And how dark we know is when he says this in verse 15. If he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know what he's saying? What I was thinking was so vile and so dark inside of my mind and inside of my heart. If I were to teach this to any, another generation, the whole generation would have been lost because they could have never believed in the God that I w- about whom I was thinking, the things I was thinking. That's a dark place to be. That's a hard place to be. But you know, at the same time, this is encouraging to me. Here is a man of God that was used of God to write the very scriptures within the word of God, and he struggles with doubt. You're not alone. You and I are going to doubt. We're humans. We're not saved because of our lack of doubt. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you and I are going to come to some times where you and I are going to go, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, God. I'm working and I'm trying to do everything that I can, but every time I turn around, there's, there's toil and there's difficulty and there's hardship. Is, is there really anything to gain within all of this? Now, he's going to be corrected, so let's look at that correction. In verse 16, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a weary task. Isn't that the way that it is sometimes, trying to figure out why things are going wrong? Have you ever sat back, tried to think about it, and you come to the end, you go, yeah, I can't figure this out. And it's weary, and all it does is make you frustrated. And then eventually it's just is exhausting. He goes, this is the point that I was at. And then note the next mark. He says, until 
I went into the sanctuary of God. So here's a man who's spiraling down. Can't make heads or tails. Why bad to the good? Why good to the bad? I don't, I don't get it. He's spiraling down. He's now questioning what he once truly believed that God is good to those who genuinely seek him. And, and so he's ready to fall away from the faith almost altogether. He says, but then I ended up going and worshiping in the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary that he's talking about wouldn't have been the temple. It hadn't been built yet. It would have been the tabernacle, which in essence was the same thing, just a makeshift temple. But what happens in the temple? It's where God's people gather to worship. They gather together, believers come together to worship and to uplift and to focus on whom? God. Out here, he said, all of our focus was on me and on everybody else. The only way I could correct this was for me to turn my direction and my focus upon the things of God. And do you know what they did inside that tabernacle? As They not only sang the, the things of God, the, the word of God, but they preached the word of God. The priest would literally take God's word and he would, he would read it. And then when he wrote it, he, he would go and bring application to it and explain what the text of scripture meant. He goes, it was through the word of God and me submitting myself to God once again that I found myself turning to to, to these mistakes, to correction, to ultimate delight. And so here he is, he's, he's swinging. Church, let me just say this in passing. Please don't underestimate the need for you and I to be committed to a local church and worship consistently with each other. I know that may seem passing, it may seem trivial. I don't think it's trivial at all. Because, because it, and you'll hear people from time to time say, well, you don't got to go to Christian to be a church. Yeah, you don't have to go to Christian to be a church. That makes sense. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Have you heard that? You, you try to invite somebody to church? Yeah, yeah but bro, I don't, have to, I don't have to go there. And you would admit, you'd say, oh, absolutely. Because going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It, it, just like going to McDonald's doesn't, you know, and eating a hamburger doesn't make you a hamburger. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We're saved by grace through faith alone, not through attendance of a church. So it's not going to make you saved. But let me tell you this. If you are not a part of a local body of believers, you will be a mess. Because you have nobody there to constantly remind you in the truth of God, not constantly remind you that it's not about you. And, and it keep you from comparing yourself to everybody else, but rather drawing our attention through what we sing and what we preach to the person of Jesus Christ. We must be a part of God's church. And then no, notice this. When, when he comes to the house of God, when he comes to the word, when he begins to understand and see God for who he is, then all of a sudden the stuff that he was confused about begins to become clear. Let me, let me give you a couple of those. He begins to understand that those blessings that he was so envious about to be able to receive, here's what he came to understand. That, that it ultimately was temporal, not eternal. It was temporal, not eternal. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. He says, then I discerned their end. He came and he realized that all the blessings that the wicked were experiencing weren't going to last very long. They were only going to be there for this life. And do we know what James says about this life? He says, it is but a vapor. Do you know how long a vapor lasts? Not very long. It's here one second, it's gone the next. He goes, in light of all of eternity, it's the best it's ever going to get. And it's going to come and go just like this. It's going to come and go. And he says, but then it is going to give way to the eternal judgment of God on them because of their wickedness. And so he's trying to sit there and go, you, guys, you and I are thinking way too temporal, way too immediate. 
now ultimately uh, e- e- eternal, for, for the rest of our lives and for the rest of eternity. And we cannot, and here's the struggle, we cannot judge God's, God's faithfulness and blessings to us by looking at only one moment in time, but that's what we often do, don't we? Uh, you and I, when, when, when we think when we're down and everything is going wrong, we take a snapshot of whatever stage our life is in, and then we compare it to a snapshot of some wicked person who everything is going great, and that's where we compare each other. And, and, and this is bad. We're in the habit of doing this, even for you who are social media crazies, right? You, you got your Facebook, you've got your Instagrammy, or whatever that thing is, and, and you've got all that, and you post pictures, and you've seen people posting pictures, Right? It's so weird. I don't want to see a picture of myself. Never mind let other people see pictures of me. I, I, don't, I really don't understand this. And, and, and everything always looks so perfect. You see and go, whoa, that's a great picture. And so it's all the selfie thing, right? You got to do the selfie. I even do the selfies with my family. It's just hard to get my whole family in a selfie. And I refuse to buy the stick to put the camera on to take a picture. I ain't going there. We can't all fit in by me doing this. We're not fitting in. All right, so you better get close. And so we, we take pictures, and then and ours is just kind of every. You take you see some of the pictures that they portray. You know they took a thousand pictures. There's no way for it all to come up together like this. Nobody looks this good. Uh, you look, there's no blemish on the face. The eyes are perfectly open. There's a twinkle coming out. The, the gut is sucked in. They're leaning up against the car that you've always wanted. Then in the background, you see the awesome house with the awesome bow, and they just sit there and go, life is good, right? And you sit there and go, it's so perfect. They have it all. They have it all together. And you're sitting there going, bro, you need to look at their whole life. It's a mess. You look beginning to end, and it's not even at that one moment. See, here's the thing. Our whole life comes around. Our whole life is a circle. That's why we call it the circle of life. You and I are not to judge it by somewhere upon the circle. We're to judge it when it finally comes around to the end. The end is what ultimately dictates and what demonstrates the blessing of God. So we have the temporal. He says these, these gifts are temporal. They're not eternal. And then we also see that these gifts are the evidence, not a blessing. Look at verse 18. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. Now they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph came to understand that they really did receive temporal blessings. But the truth is, we receive temporal blessings. But they do something different with it. The, all the blessings that they were receiving, they were using to be able to promote and enact their sinful actions. So the health that they got, you know what they begin to do? They begin to use it to do more wicked things. The money that they got, they begin to sow it into more wicked things, more sin against God. And God did give those, those things. Why? Because God is good. He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. Would we agree? He, he, would, would we agree? Yes, we, we do. And so what happens is, is he gives them a blessing for what purpose? He says, because his goodness should lead them to repentance. God is good to sinners to lead them to faith in him. The, the recollection should be, all these things are so wonderful. Oh, wait, God has given this. I should be glorifying God. Instead of glorifying God, they begin, according to Romans 1, begin to glorify the creation rather than the creator. And then what does God say? They persist in that. They persist in rebellion against God. They persist to begin to take part in idolatry. And then what does God say at the end of Romans chapter 1? He gives them up. He gives them up. So now here's what happens. 
He says they all look like blessings, and in the beginning they are, but in the end it turns out to be evidence against them, which ultimately indicts them to hell because every moment they spent, the health that they received, and even the money that they spent for things that were in, in opposition to God and a rebellion to God now stand as all the evidence that will ultimately condemn them for an eternity in hell. This is how you need to change your view. It's not because God's continuing to bless. Yes, God blesses, but in the end, it will be evidence against them. And then another one, two more, very quickly. Absence, these gifts uh, demonstrate absence, not presence. The absence of God, not the presence of God. You know, he really had a hard time with these people seeming to get away with everything. Have you ever known somebody like that? Where you're like, bro, you must be living good. And you're like, they're not living good. But somehow they must be living good. God must be on their side because they're getting away with everything. His complaint against God was that he got away with nothing. Remember when he said, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He goes, here I am trying to do what is right. And every time I do one thing wrong, God comes and he disciplines me. And what he's saying, he goes, bro, you're looking at them getting away with something as though I'm with them. And that I love them and that, that I'm, I'm with them. But it doesn't demonstrate that I'm with them. It demonstrates that I'm not with them. The discipline that you're experiencing shows that I'm with you. Uh, he, he says in verse 21, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Asaph came to understand, God, The difficulties that you brought upon me was a demonstration of your love, not an absence of your love. We understand that as parents, right? And we understand that from the word of God. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God disciplines his children. He does not discipline others' children. We get this. You go to the store with kids. What are you going to do? You try to discipline your own kids. Don't touch that. Stop that. Stop it. Stop it. Put it down. You're in trouble. So you're doing this as you go, all right? And so that's why you should all only have one child. Much easier. Strap them in. You're done with it, all right? So uh, my word to you. But the others, you're trying to balance all this as you're going through. And then, and then what happens is you're trying to keep it all together. And then all of a sudden, you see another family. You know that family? Usually, it's probably me. But that other family where it's like World War III is going on and, and the kid is like throwing silly putty at the parent's head and the, and the parent's just taking it, you know, it's just hitting them in the head. They're not really doing anything about it. And your own kids are like, Daddy, they're being bad, aren't they? And you're like, yeah, honey, they're, they're being bad. They deserve a spanking, don't they? Yes, honey, they deserve a spanking. They do. And then they turn to you and they go, Daddy, are you going to do it? Daddy, I said, yeah, honey, I know. I'm just thinking about what you said there. I got to think that over for a minute. No, I'm not going to spank them. I'm not going to discipline them. Why? They're not my own. They're not my child. I only discipline those who I care for, who I ultimately love. And, And so this is very interesting is because it's not only about disciplining. It's also oftentimes keeping stuff from somebody because you know it's not good for them. So think about it this way. Oftentimes when you are sitting back and we're thinking, why don't we receive all of the stuff that a lost world ultimately is receiving? Why is that? Is that because God doesn't love us? No, it's because he loves you. He doesn't want to give you up. Oftentimes when we pray for something and we don't receive it, we're so dis- we're like, does he not love us? Are we not living a good life? No, he knows what you need and what you don't need. And he knows what the idols of your heart are. And he knows that if he gives you what it is that you ultimately want, that you too might be given up because you're going to end up crea- uh, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so he loves you. 
And so finally, look, look here, he begins to realize that these gifts are stuff, they're not God. They're stuff, they're not God. So this fourth correction uh, was, was about what he cherished. See, Asaph again thought that following God didn't pay off because at the end of the day, he wasn't receiving all the stuff that the wicked were ultimately receiving. In a way, uh, without Asaph even recognizing it, his heart had drifted. His heart had drifted away from God. When you and I spend so much time envying the material things and the fleshly things that the world has, I can guarantee you that your and my hearts and affections have shifted. They are not where they ultimately ought to be. And he comes to this realization that when he says it doesn't pay off that I've really followed God, hasn't worked out for me because I haven't gotten the stuff, he comes to the realization he's been using God, not pursuing God. He's using God to get the idolatrous things that the wicked partake in. He's not just pursuing God for who God is. And so he comes back and he repents and he says in verse 25, he says, whom have I, whom have I, whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He comes to the realization through all this. He says, you know what? I've been down on God, but the truth is my heart has gone astray. I'm upset because I'm not receiving all these material things, all these worldly things that are just temporal anyway. It's not a demonstration of whether God loves, loves me or not. In fact, it may be a demonstration of him keeping it and disciplining me that he truly does love me as a child of God. And the truth is, I'm the one that got myself into this big pickle to begin with because the truth is, I want the same materialistic things as the world does, and I've shifted from wanting it, from, from, or wanting God to wanting it. And so this is why what Asaph came to understand is that he, that he had received God. God is our just reward for pursuing him. He doesn't withhold any good thing from us because he gives himself to us fully. That is why at the end of the day, he can say, truly God is good to those who are pure of heart. Please understand that our just reward, our eternity is God. Now here's what's going to happen. Somebody could sit back and go, what? is that supposed to do it for me? Is that supposed to do it for me? So I'm struggling with this. I, 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 everything's going bad for me and I'm seeking God. And, and yet for these wicked, everything's going right, but yet they're disobeying him. And you tell me that I have God and he's my reward and that's supposed to clear it up for me? Well, it did for Asaph and it does for every regenerate believer in Jesus Christ. When I say regenerate believer in Jesus Christ, it's the miracle of salvation. The miracle of salvation is that when God saves you, it's a work of God. He takes your old heart that wants nothing but stuff, and he gives you new affections for the God that you never loved. And he begins to help you to understand, just like Paul, that everything else that you used to value now is accounted as rubbish, as dung and surpassing knowledge of knowing who God is. It's not something that I mustered up inside of me. It's not something that you muster up. It's what God has created inside of our hearts that our greatest desire is for the person of God. And when we're reminded once again that he is our just reward, that he is, is our gift, then we begin to sit back and go, He's enough. He's enough. Now the question is, is he enough for you? Maybe you're here and maybe you would sit back and go, hey, I've struggled with this stuff too, but the truth of the matter is the reason I'm struggling with it is because I think I'm righteous and I think I'm deserving of something. 
Isn't it interesting that true believers sit back and go, well, the reality is if I really got what I deserve, then I'd be burning in hell for all eternity. Do I have any takers? <laughs> right? But, but you may sit back and go, hey, I'm good. I'm doing this. It may be because your view of God is off. That you think that the blessings of God, he's only going to bless you in these material, temporal ways is when you're doing something. And the bad part is, is because you don't love God, it's because you love the stuff. You may not be born again. You need to repent and believe in him. For many of the rest, here's the truth. For those who are truly born again, this should begin to encourage our heart this morning and to be able to sit back and go, you know what? Everything is not as I see it. When I get my eyes off God, I feel as though there's truly blessing and I want to be like them. But what I find out what these things actually are in the end, I want nothing to do with them. And I praise God that if all I have is God, that is enough. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you. We glorify you. We thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would remind us that you are enough, that you have given yourself to us, that we have your presence. God, help us to think on these things, to navigate through these difficulties, to realize that in some ways life is not fair, but the things that the wicked may have and enjoy are not necessarily the things that we want to enjoy because we have you. We have you. Lord, help us with that. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Just take a couple moments just to begin to uh, respond. Uh, if you want prayer, if you want to know more about Christ, please, would you please come? I'd love to just talk with you a couple minutes to try to clarify what this gospel is, what it means to repent and believe. Uh, if you've got questions with that, uh, if you need to come and pray, it's, it's open. Uh, but let's just respond to what God's taught us this morning.